1: Today, I'm back in New Orleans. I'm actually in the Paperless Chase Studios. If you listened to our last episode, I interviewed Andrew Legrand, an attorney in New Orleans at the Paperless Chase Studios, and I decided maybe it was time I actually interviewed the Paperless Chase owner, <laughs> Ernest Fenson, so I'm here with Ernie. I'm going to ask Ernie to introduce himself in a second, but before we do that, I want to make sure and thank our sponsor, Solo Practice University. Make sure you check out their website, learn about all the different CLE sessions and webinars and seminars and content materials they have for solos. Hey Ernie.
2: Hey, how's it going? It's
1: going good. Yeah. Thanks for uh, not only lending me your studio <laughs> again, but actually lending me you.
2: Oh, you know, I'm happy to do it. I always enjoy talking to you.
1: I know, it's fun. So our listeners have maybe heard your name. You've been out there in the legal technology profession as a blogger, as a lawyer, as a speaker, as a well-known writer, as a Katrina survival survivor, um, and now as a consultant. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you and sort of... Uh, where you are right now.
2: Okay. Um, so I practiced law for 20-something years in a big firm, big by New Orleans standards, and I enjoyed it very much. I did commercial litigation, worked on you know complex cases with lots of documents, lots of lawyers, and it was fun um, until it wasn't, and it became not so much fun. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that. I went out on my own because I wanted to see if that would be a more satisfying way to practice, and it was. And then after a couple of years, I found myself talking to a lot of lawyers that were trying to do the same thing I did or had sort of started to do what I had done. You know, lawyers in small firms, which was not what I had spent most of my life doing. And so I liked those lawyers in small firms. I liked helping them. And one of the big issues was how do they incorporate technology into their practice, So about two years ago, I quit practicing law so that I could devote full time to the thing I like doing the most, which is helping those small firm lawyers.
1: That's great. So the reason I asked you on the show, and we know what we're going to talk about, is what it took for you to actually take the leap to leave a big law firm. Mm -hmm. How you did it. And then the same types of questions maybe that that lawyers, you know, like David Sparks, I had on the show not that long ago, and he kept referencing how much you helped him and how helpful you were, not just as a friend, but in a weird way as an advisor and saying, well, here are the things you need to consider. Here are the things that you're going to get asked. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Cool. Yeah. I think that'll be a good topic for us. So, and then we're also going to talk about paperless chase and how you came around, you know, really deciding that practicing law wasn't for you because that's another interest. I mean, that's a whole another topic
2: right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So you're at this big law firm in New Orleans, and this was, um, what was it, maybe 10 years ago? That... Yeah, it
2: was 2005 was when I became disillusioned. I remember because it was Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, so that was the, the benchmark.
1: So how long before you actually decided to do it, which I know is around the, the time of Katrina, and you mm-hmm. can tell us more about that, how long had you been thinking about it, and why? Why would a, a lawyer who is with a big firm and has all the resources of a big firm and all the things at his fingertips, a secretary probably, uh, a pool of paralegals, associates to help you. Why Mm. would you want to leave? And how long had you thought about it before you did it? Um,
2: I think I probably had thought about it not in a a conscious way uh, for probably a few years longer than I thought I had. You know, and it's only after I left that I kind of piece it all together. But I mean, basically, when I started practicing law... I worked for a judge for two years, and the federal judge was, you know, he was a great mentor, taught me a lot of things. But, you know, one of the things he told me was you know, taught me was to be resourceful. I mean, he—he he, his idea was, look, don't be a prima donna, learn how to type your own stuff, operate the copy machine, do what you have to do yourself, hmm. um, and let's just get it done. You know, that was his mentality. So when I went to work at the firm, you know, I took that same mentality, and I walked in the back room where the copy machines were. And I said, show me how to use them, you know, with the idea that if I was there on the weekend or late at night, you know, I'd just be able to do things. And so I was one of those attorneys in the firm that probably did a lot more of that stuff and didn't see it as a stigma or something where I was, you know, not that my firm was pretty cool. They weren't the kind of firm where, you know, if you fraternize with the staff, that was somehow uh, wrong, which happens in some firms. Um, So I just was naturally gravitating towards using those tools. I learned how to use the word processing system. Uh, So I was self-sufficient, and I liked using those tools. And so I think I I enjoyed working that way because it just was more natural for me to get things done more quickly without having to jump through as many hoops. I did have paralegals. I enjoyed working with them, and when I showed up, they knew a lot more about practicing law than I did. So it was nice to have them around, but over time... You know, I worked on cases and, you know, as you moved up, if the, the cases got bigger in my firm and as the cases got bigger, the paralegals got sucked over into the big cases and I tended not to like working on the big, huge cases. So I needed then to figure out how to do that same kind of stuff um, that the paralegals were doing for me myself. So I used technology, I scanned documents, I was paperless. And so kind of at the time Katrina hit, I really was kind of functioning as a solo lawyer inside of a big firm.
1: That's interesting. And so in my experience with big firms, it's almost as if that's how most lawyers operate. But for the fact that they suck so many resources out of the, you know, again, the, the legal assistant pool and the paralegal pool. So in a weird way, um, you know, they they act independently, but they don't work independently. So right. you were both acting and working independently. All right, so... Katrina comes along, turns the whole city upside down. And that's when you well, that think is, to yourself.
2: Yeah, hmm. because all right, because first of all, I had sort of started to think consciously about it because a friend of mine had left the firm about a year or two before that. And he went out and he was on his own and he was showing me tools he was using and things he was doing. And I thought, oh, hmm, OK, that's interesting. You know, Rich left and was, had a complex practice and now he's a solo lawyer and he's you know getting by. So I started experimenting with some of the tools that he was using. But it was really Katrina that that did it. And it was because I had, at this point, all my documents were scanned. I had them on a shared network drive. But
1: there was, was no cloud back then.
2: No, there was no cloud. Right? So it was all about synchronizing. You know, I had to, like, check the documents out and synchronize them. Yeah, it was way more complicated <laughs> yeah. than, than it was <laughs> now. Um, so, but it was still simpler. Than having, you know, paralegal assemble the, bu- the briefing book and put everything in chronological order. And so it just, you know, I wasn't using paralegals and I wasn't using my secretary in the traditional way. And so when Katrina hit, the, firm, uh, the firm's website was down. The firm's email was down. The firm's fax machines were down. The firm's time and billing system was down. Everything was down. Meanwhile, I had all my documents on my laptop. Uh, I knew how to use my laptop. I had a website that was up and running, I had email, I was using Google
1: Mail back then. And you had your your client email addresses and yeah. contacts and phone numbers. So even though you weren't you couldn't use the firm resources, you just had some sort of even though it was personal backup a way to communicate yeah. with clients. Yeah, okay. and I mean that and makes I, sense. So
2: I was totally my, so all of my stuff was functioning and the firm was paralyzed. And that's when I started to think, "Huh, you yeah, know, if I'm paying fifty,
1: yeah, I
2: mean fifty cents of every dollar I collect supposedly went to pay for overhead. I wasn't using the overhead, and if I had been using the overhead, I'd be worse off. So I thought, well, maybe I could do this on my own. I mean, how hard could this be? If I already know how to use the web to get clients, I'm getting clients through the web. I have, I know how to be paperless. I won't need a big office with a lot of machinery. I won't need a paralegal. So I just started to wonder if it was crazy, but it seemed like I could totally go out on my own and do the same kind of law, but without all the administrative burdens and agony that I had, you know, come, come to despise.
1: Okay, so you decide to do it. You're like, that's it, I'm going out on my own. Yeah. You tell the law firm, yep. and they're probably... They were fine. They were I mean, fine. They, you know,
2: they wanted me to stay, but they said, okay, we understand.
1: So had before you left, had you thought about what type of practice you were, were you going to continue the same practice or were you going to be willing to ha- take any kind of case that you could get? Cause you were starting out as a solo.
2: Well, I was hoping I wouldn't have to take any kind of case, but I was, you know, I was willing to well, do that for a while if that's what it took, but I knew I wouldn't have to, I mean, I'd the numbers and the numbers were, I wasn't going to need as much overhead. And so my guiding principles were, I don't want to pay for, I don't want to lock into any long-term contracts. So everything has to be month to month. So I wasn't going to negotiate for a lease at a fancy place because okay. that would lock me in. And everything was month to month. And as long as it was month to month, I could keep evaluating and tweaking things as I needed to.
1: So here's a question. Um, I was recently helping a friend of mine who wanted to go solo and, you know, who am I to help other than I, I just had one piece of information from him and it actually came from the emyth. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've read the emyth, yep. Everybody's read the emyth, But there's also now like the emyth for lawyers. So and specifically in the E-Myth for lawyers, they have this... Formula, it's very specific. You take three hundred and sixty-five days out of the year, you deduct twenty holidays, two weeks off for vacation, all the weekends, and you end up with something like two hundred and twenty days mm-hmm. that are potentially billable, all things, you know, in a perfect world. You decide the amount of money that you want to make. So if it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, you take two hundred and fifty thousand, you divide by two twenty, and you end up with that's how much that's your daily billing goal. Right. So how had you done it?
2: Well, to be perfectly honest, I was not that strategic oh. when I did it, and it was because I first off I knew that I was making way more money than I actually really needed in my life. So that was one one thing. Okay. So I didn't really know how much I truly needed, you know, to be happy. I knew it wasn't as much as I was making. So that was one thing. And also, I knew I didn't need to, you know, meet the overhead requirements. So I was kind of ballparking it. Um, but like I said, and that's why it was important to me not to not have any long term right. commitments.
1: Okay. And did you tell your, what did you tell your clients? Did you try to take client Like what happens? You say, okay, you tell the firm, they're like, fine, you know, good luck and have a nice life. Yeah. And then do you turn to clients and, and say, Hey, I'm going out on my own. Do you want to come? Are there yeah. certain clients that you think, Oh, thank God I never have to work for them again. Yes. So you don't even, <laughs> you don't even few, make them the yes. option. <laughs> yes.
2: There were a few of those for sure. And, uh, <laughs> I did the happy dance when I thought about them, but, um, <laughs> no, you know, there was, it, I, there were two categories of clients. There were the ones like I was surprised went with me cause they, They had complex practices and I figured they might think I couldn't handle a complex matter even though I had already been handling the complex matters because I had been doing the same thing. I was just going to do it in a different place without, you know, having the firm. And then there were the ones who, this surprised me, which were, there are these kind of cases where you're the local counsel for somebody and your job really is to just, you know, be the eyes on the ground be the local guide, maybe file some motions, help them out. But really, all the heavy lifting is done by the big national firm. And a friend of mine represented one of those companies, and I figured, well, he's my friend; he's the one that brought the case in, in the first place. Surely they'll, you know, give me the case. They didn't. Hmm. And he said, uh, "Look, I'm really sorry. You know, if it had been up to me, I t- obviously, you know, you're the one we hired. We, you're the one we want to work on the case. And but they just have this idea that you know, it's just you, and if it's just you." something could go wrong and you wouldn't be able to handle it, which I understood, you know, it's misguided, but I understand that people had that view. And, you know, I was like, okay, that's fine. So, you know, most of the clients that I wanted to come with me came, and that was good.
1: And then how did you... When you told other lawyers, whether they were your friends or, uh, you know, opposing counsel that you just occasionally run into on the streets, when you said, oh, I've gone out on my own, I've left my big law firm, what were the reactions like? And how did you
2: <laughs> Oh they th- many of the, Yeah, many of them thought I had lost my marbles because after Katrina, a lot of people did some bold things. And, you know, I think there was part of that to my decision. Um, and I couldn't really say for sure that it was going to succeed. I mean, it was kind of an experiment. So I didn't, I wasn't brash or bold. You know, I kind of said, well, you know, I just wanted to give it a shot. I thought it was going to be more satisfying. And, you know, they kind of looked at me like, well, okay, I hope it works out. That's funny. <laughs> but Thanks a lot. Yeah. You know, they were rooting for me. They weren't really hoping, <laughs> expecting, but they were rooting.
1: What are the types of questions that you get a lot now? So mm-hmm. you made the leap and then, you you know, like we mentioned earlier, David Sparks comes to you and, and says... Am I going to get lonely? Did you get lonely?
2: Yeah, people thought... That was one thing. A couple of friends of mine said, Oh, you know, you, what's it going to be like? You're all by yourself. And what if you want to go to lunch? And what if you want to talk over a case? With God, it's not like you
1: moved to the moon.
2: I know. I know. And what what they didn't understand, first off, is that because I'd started that blog in 2002, I had a lot of friends throughout the country that were lawyer-blogger types. So if I had a question about, you know, trademark law, I'd call Marty Schwimmer. If I had a question about internet law, I'd call, you know, Evan Brown. You know, there were all these lawyers that I could call and pick their brains. And then locally, if I wanted to go to lunch, you know, I'd call up a friend and go to lunch. So It wasn't like I didn't have access to those people. I did. And what was great was, you know, when I didn't want to be disturbed, I was at home alone. And nobody just walked into my office and asked me to look at something. So... I actually got more work done mm. and was more satisfied working by myself than I was in the firm, which I know is kind of weird, but that was true.
1: And then eventually, did you continue to work from home or did you ever get an office?
2: No, I got an office at a co-working space. Mm-hmm. And what happened there was a friend of mine who was a lawyer, Al Robert, you know, really smart, uh, innovative young lawyer, had hooked up with some folks who were starting a co-working space mm. and they um, needed some folks to come down there and sort of start it out. And I said, I would. And I did it really just kind of to help them out thinking, well, it's the summer. My kids were home from college and gone was the idyllic point where I was by myself and nobody would barge in and interrupt me. You know, my kids were coming in and interrupting me. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll go down there for the summer, you know, just hang out and then I'll come back after my kids go back to college. But what I found was it was really exhilarating to be around people that were starting their own businesses Mm -hmm. and they'd have questions about the law and I'd have questions about how to tweak my website. And it was kind of like being part of this wonderful tech commune where everybody got along and they were all happy. There were no disgruntled employees. There was no, you know, gossip about horrible things happening. Everybody was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and working on something cool and interesting. And it was really great. I loved it.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor.
0: Ready to create and build your own solo or small firm practice? Need a nuts and bolts education on the 360 degree experience of starting a business? There is only one online destination dedicated to helping you achieve your goals. Solo Practice University. The only online educational and professional networking community dedicated to lawyers and law students who want to go into practice for themselves. More than 1,000 classes, 58 faculty and mentors, what are you waiting for? Check out SolopracticeUniversity.com today.
1: Welcome back to New Solo. I'm Adriana Linares, and with me today is Ernest Spencer. Ernie, before we took a break, we just talked about things that you thought about and went through before you left your big firm, and then we last left you at having had a uh, co-op space. Yeah. So you got a, got yourself an office space, and you had some comrades, and they weren't necessarily lawyers, but you liked that. Mm-hmm. And then tell me a little bit more about things like um, what if you needed help? What if you did decide that you needed someone to do legal research for you? Or maybe you wish, did you ever wish you had a pair legal? Did you oh, ever wish? I, you had- yes,
2: I wish that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you wouldn't wish for that.
1: Okay, so how did you deal with it?
2: Well, you know, I tried, <laughs> I tried getting virtual assistance, um, but back then that was kind of harder to do. Right. The cloud wasn't as mature, it wasn't as easy to collaborate. Um Yeah, I mean, I still had the dream that I would have a paralegal, but the problem was you'd have to coordinate, train, establish what the rules of engagement were. And I'm not a really good manager of other people, and I realized that wasn't going to work. So, you know, I, I just started going all in on anything that either would help me automate my practice or working with people who are already tech savvy. So, you know, like I had, if I had a case that involved something, uh, where I needed somebody, it was a legal ethics problem, or you know, it was in federal court. My friend Dane Celino, very tech savvy, and he and I would have no friction in setting up something collaborative. So we would work on cases together, and it was really easy because we knew how to get along. And then, if I needed somebody who was kind of the bulldog lawyer, who was you know going to go in and charge and and uh, and and be aggressive, because I didn't like doing that. There was a friend of mine who did that who was pretty tech savvy. So it was kind of like the minimum criteria was they need to be tech savvy up to a certain point, And then they would fill a role that I either didn't want to fill, wasn't good at, or if I just needed help, you know, I would kind of
1: collaborate with those people. So it sounds like the secret to your success at the time, which is probably not any different than it would be today, is being, ab- being able to find, learn, and use technology resources as best as possible. And Having a good network of other lawyers or legal professionals that you could reach out to on a pretty regular basis sounds pretty important. Oh,
2: yeah, that was key. That was the
1: best thing. Okay, so that's a very good tip that we've got to make sure, you know, really sinks in is Mm -hmm. you are not an island, and, you know, whether those are the. And I can't imagine that that would be very hard. I mean, if you've been a lawyer practicing law for X number of years in any town, I mean, even a big town, but a mid sized town like this. You're going to know who those people are, or like you said, right. you've got your internet resources that are available as well. Did you find that you were able to give more attention to clients out on your own after you sort of handpicked the ones that you got, or it didn't really matter? You, you were able to live, to deliver just as good a service with a big firm back behind, backing you? as a small firm by yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, no, I, def, I definitely think I gave better service to the clients I had, cause I had fewer of them. They were of paramount importance to me, obviously. Mm. And, um, and it was easier. I mean, they knew that they could contact me directly and they did. And that was great. Um, it was trickier with clients that were prospective clients who were kind of feeling me out because, so that was one area where I kind of bungled it at first. Uh, because I was trying to automate everything, so I tried to, I set up this service with Ring Central, where people would call and then you know i I rented somebody who had a British accent so they 'd make it seem like <laughs> I had a sophisticated practice. but in the end, you know they were talking to a voicemail machine, and that 's not very good and then you know I, and then if they talked to voicemail they 'd want to hear from me, so i 'd have to call them so that was one where hiring real human people and what I did was I used Ruby Receptionist. And that was, I didn't want to use them at first because I thought, well, they were too expensive, but they turned out to be, even though they're one of the more expensive things that I paid for per month, they were very valuable because it was the human touch and people didn't expect that from a small firm or solo lawyer. And it also allowed that the clients or prospective clients to feel attended to because somebody was talking to them and I could keep working.
1: So did you end up hiring a paralegal or secretary at any time? I mean, you, you mentioned Ruby Receptionist. And then being able to, you know, work with other lawyers when you needed another lawyer Mm. on a case. But what about, um, did you ever end up hiring?
2: I had somebody who had been a paralegal at my old firm who was uh, unhappy in Lafayette where she was working. And she was moving to New Orleans and she wanted help. And she came to work at the co-working space. And so I told her I'd get her work. So I gave her work. She wasn't working for me full time, although she probably worked for me a lot. Um... And you know, we knew kind of the old system that we had operated under. So that was the closest I ever came. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a brief stint, lasted about a year.
1: So when attorneys come to you today and say, Ernie, how did how did you do it? How do I do it? What are the top three or four things that you make sure and remind them and tell them?
2: Well, the first thing is, you, so I am kind of like, you know, and lawyers like me are, have the same experience. It's like Ellis Island, you know, because you did it, you know, they come, the foreigners come check in and say, hey, you know, we're here. How, how's this going to work? You know, what's what's life going to be like? But what's weird is the, the main thing that most of them want affirmation and validation of is that they're really going to make it. And it's a really interesting conversation because this was the same conversation I had with about three or four different friends of mine you know, I thought, yeah, I'm going to, okay, i jump, but am I going to land on firm ground? And they all said, Ernie, you will not believe how much work you're going to get because you're a solo that you're not getting now because you're part of a big firm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they and explained it and I didn't get it. And I say the same thing to lawyers now and they, everybody all gets it. And the thing is, there's something about, you know, working in a small firm where people know you have to be efficient and you're watching all the pennies they will come to you and give you a case that they wouldn't if you were in a big firm, which I guess, you know, they instinctively know is maybe more than they can afford. So that was absolutely true for me. And that's been absolutely true for every single lawyer that I've talked to. And they're always, we're all astonished that this is right. the case, but that's the way the world works.
1: No matter how many times you hear it or they tell it, nobody believes it till it's been a couple of years. Right. I think David Sparks said that very thing, same thing. When, we interv- when I interviewed him, mm-hmm. he said, well, everybody kept saying the business would come. I didn't know where it would come from, but holy cow, it actually came. So we keep talking about your law practice, your solo law practice in the past,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, as if
1: it no longer is around.
2: <laughs> well, it's kind of not because I don't do it anymore. Yeah, <laughs>
1: So I think that's interesting. Um, and that could be a whole nother episode, right? How to use your law degree in a, in a creative and different way that is not practicing law. So I'm going to ask you what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, I have a background question.
2: Sure.
1: So I know that you don't practice law anymore. You do basically consulting. When you left your law firm mm. and went on on your own, was this your long-term goal or did you leave thinking, I'm going to be a solo practitioner or, you know, mm-hmm. my goal is to be a solo practitioner until I retire?
2: Yeah, no, my goal was really... The only thing I could... If I thought that I could have done something other than practice as a solo, I might have said, oh, that's great. I can use that as a jumping board. I might have thought that. I had no way of thinking that. I thought... It would be amazing enough if I had a solo practice that I was happy with. And that's really what all I was looking for is I thought, I knew I I liked practicing long when I started. Then I stopped liking it. I liked the firm. I liked the people. I liked most of my clients. I couldn't figure out what the problem was exactly. And, you know, I, I complained about things like committee meetings and I complained about, the usual large firm organizational bureaucracy, but I wasn't sure that was really the problem. And I also wasn't really sure I could make it on my own and be happy. Um, I, so I, that's really all I cared about was figuring out whether that was true or not. And then if that wasn't true, figuring out, well, how do I go back to a world that can pay me money and that I can get by? Cause I need money to you know pay bills. But it turned out that I could make it on my own and I was happier And then I talked to other people who were solo lawyers, and they were happier. And so that that was good enough for six years.
1: And then what happened?
2: Well, and then I got asked so many times by lawyers, and I was invited to speak to, to groups, mostly small firm lawyers, and they were trying to figure out how to use technology. And, you know, I was able to describe to them how to connect dots in a way that they, I guess, couldn't figure it out. And so I gave more of those talks, and the more of those talks I gave, the more I liked it. I was even invited to speak for money. And I was like, wow, that's great. And so I figured there's money here. I like doing it. There's a
1: need. Yeah, there's, there's a need. need. There's an opportunity. There's money.
2: And I like doing it. And I really, you know, I when people...
1: Which is actually not that different than having gone solo, right? There's a right. need. There's an opportunity. And right. you liked it at the time. All right, so...
2: Yeah, and what I liked about it the most and still like about it the most is, you know, I, I'm I've been frustrated with the way this the legal system works you know there are a lot of things about it that are inefficient that I know could be changed if we could all just you know let go of some things and and adopt a new way of, of going about it and I can't change that all by myself and I certainly can't do a practicing law but I can I feel like I can I have a greater influence if I help lawyers improve their practices that yeah. scales you know that has a multiplier effect that I can't get just being a little old me practicing law so and
1: so how do you do that
2: Well, I I show lawyers and small firms how to connect those dots, you know, and and there are a lot of dots to connect, which I didn't realize when I started this. I thought, oh, how hard could this be? Get a scanner, be paperless. But I guess what I didn't realize was that I had been doing a lot of little small things, not noticing that that was something that was going to lead to something else or that was a skill that was going to help me acquire another skill. And then when I would talk to these lawyers, I'd realize, wow, they really need a lot of help. I mean, you know, talk from talking to you. You're in a lot of firms and you know, you have a perspective I didn't have. and so I realized wow, this there's really a lot of need here and mm-hmm. it's 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 big, you know, and it's not going away because there's more technology being rolled out all the time. So what I think lawyers wanted that I was able to give them that maybe some other people can't give them as readily is okay, so I did it not because I was a techie because I'm not a techie. I was I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and I think, that was the judge gave me that sense of self, you know, you know, independence and so forth. And so, you know, if you're willing to play with this stuff and just mess around with it, it's not going to break. Um, you can learn a lot, or if you're not, if you don't want to learn it all yourself, there are people now that can help you accelerate the learning path. And it's really just a question of finding some low hanging fruit. You know, what's the next thing that will have a big impact on your practice? Um, and finding the people that can help you, that are trustworthy. And that's where I, I I have gotten to know, I'm fortunate to know many people like you, um, and you know, others who I say are tech consultants, I call them fiduciaries. Like they have a fiduciary mindset instead of a transactional mindset. They don't go, Oh, well, let me tell Joe Blow to get this thing and it'll make his life better because he wants it and I'll make a sale. The, you know, people like you and the people I trust are like, How can I help that lawyer improve their practice? And even if What I tell them to do isn't something I sell or it is something I I specifically sell something else that's similar. If I make them happier and improve the practice, that's better for everybody. So there are people like that out there and you just have to find those people, learn how to connect the dots. And, you know, your practice can improve dramatically, Mm. like really quickly.
1: Well, I sure know that's true because I watch it happen all the time. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we've reached the end of our program, so I want to make sure and give you an opportunity to let our guests know how they can learn more about you and, of course, your great new services and Paperless Chase and, and what you do. So tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, ask you questions, learn sure. more.
2: I'm real easy to find. You Google Ernie the Attorney, and there's all kinds of websites. But the two main ones are paperlesschase.com, which I started to help lawyers figure out how to get a paperless. And then more recently, I started one called smallfirmbootcamp.com where I try to help lawyers and small firms kind of figure out how to connect those dots from, you know, the beginning stages of messing around with technology to more advanced, sophisticated things.
1: Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, Ernie. And, of course, lending me your studio again here in New Orleans, everybody's favorite city. For all you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, make sure to visit New Solo at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Of course, we're on all the usual channels, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, Facebook, Make sure you check us out all over the place. So that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Adriana Linares. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode. And remember, you're not alone. You're New Solo.
0: Thanks for listening to New Solo with host Adriana Linares. Tune in again to learn more about how to successfully run your new practice. Solo, here on Legal Talk Network.